like love, faith is one of those words that it shows up a lot. It covers a lot of territory, and it's very common, and we can use it in almost any sense. And so through that, we can begin to think that we know what we're talking about when we don't necessarily know what we're talking about. Um, so the question really is, what is faith? And I think the biggest problem I have with faith is uh, that we, we misdiagnose it in a couple different ways. We, we, we point in a couple different ways. So when I became a Christian at Clemson University, 22, within a year I was headed towards seminary. I was going to be a pastor, and, and that was a, a trippy realization for me. And it was a trippy realization for my fraternity brothers and my friends and everything else. And, and nobody really... Um, dug it. Nobody valued that or appreciated that. So one night I was walking around the dorms and these, these guys from a Christian college, uh, very famous conservative Christian college, about an hour away in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, were walking around and they were doing evangelism. So they walked up to me and um, they said who they were and that they wanted to know uh, if I knew Jesus and they were going to share about Jesus. And for a brief moment, I got so excited. It was like I was going to have friends again. You know, I'd forgotten what that felt like. And, and so I got really excited. And, and so I started telling these guys like, oh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. And I'm actually, you know, uh, going to be leaving for seminary here in, in the next year. And I'm going to be a pastor. And, and I'm kind of, you know, exci- extrovertedly excited about this. And it was as if nothing I said registered. I mean, it was, it was really weird. They were, they were zombies from another planet, and, and nothing I said came across these two individuals. And their, their next response was so disconnected from what I said. It was from some kind of a program or, or itinerary of how you go about um, saving somebody um, like myself that, that their response came from here, not here. And I, it, I just was so confused. And throughout the conversation, I just got more and more confused and, and just began to realize there's this real dissonance going on. I just didn't even want to be around these guys, and I, I didn't understand what was happening. And so come to find out later, the view of that college, at least at that point in time, this is uh, a long time ago, um, was that nobody who was saved could go to Clemson University as, as a big secular college. Um, and so nobody that went to Clemson University, me, at that point in time, honestly could be saved. And so that's where they were coming from. And, and it was just this radical kind of thing. And, and what you might realize is that if you go back to high school, if you go to college, if you go to somewhere where you used to live, there are groups of Christians or, or pictures of Christianity that are, that are dissonant to you. Or were dissonant to you. Do you know what I mean by dissonant? We use the word vibe a lot. Like, you know, so-and-so puts off a vibe or the vibe that they were, you know. And we mean it almost literally that, that different people from what we say, our body language, everything else, it projects a vibe. And that vibe can be at times incredibly dissonant with who you are, what you believe, or even just what your gut is telling you. Do you understand what I mean by dissonant? Like, somebody putting off a vibe and it's just dissonant to you. And so if that person or if that group are Christians, it's a really interesting thing to, to kind of figure out this, this whole cultural picture of Christianity or this particular instantiation 
of Christianity is putting off an incredibly offensive vibe to me, and I don't necessarily know that I want to ascribe to that or be with it. And if you're not incredibly aware, like I wasn't aware that, that this particular college had this view that no one that went to Clemson could be a Christian. Um, if you're not aware of kind of what's going on with the vibe, you can begin to project that vibe onto Christianity itself. So if it was a group in high school that was very hypocritical, you could have ended up with the view that, man, Christians, look at, there's just a degree of hypocrisy here. Uh, Or if they're very ungracious, you can develop this view. And so what begins to happen in that instance is you want to not identify with those people, and faith begins to look a lot like identifying with that group of people. And so faith almost begins to be this, I want to disengage and, and find a place of neutrality so that I'm not getting tangled up with this thing that I just have this really difficult time with. Whereas biblical faith, true faith, is not so much an identification with a cultural picture of Christianity as it is a trust in a relationship, a devotion that we have with God. Let me just give you one or two more quick pictures. I woke up this morning, went to my email, and there was... Uh, I'm on a kind of a mass mailing list with a group of Christians um, that are vocational justice workers, and they spend their life working in areas of justice. And a a large uh, portion of this group are Christians who are also Native Americans, uh, have a Native American heritage. And one of these individuals uh, who teaches at a college Um, sent a link around and said, man, we still have a lot of work to do. That was basically all the email was, and then it put a a link. And the link was to, I I think it was, um, not Louisville, is not a state. Is it? (laughs) Um, Is there a state that begins with an L? Louisiana. Louisiana. All right. Um, So in Louisiana, uh, I think it was, there's a, a governor or an elected official that's trying to, and, and we, we don't know what we're doing, by the way. Um, I've never publicly said this. We're, we're quasi-homeschooling our kids. I don't know. We, I pay a lot of money for a whole lot of different things, so I feel like they're private schooled based on finance. Um, but they go one day a week, and then they have an after-school thing, and then they're at home with us. And so I don't know what we're doing. I, I don't but we, we, do a lot of, we do a lot of things with our kids. We're actually excited about it. Um, but uh, but it, so I don't take stands on which is right, which is wrong. My, my official view is as parents, you need to figure out what God is leading you to do with your kids. And you've probably got to figure it out for each individual kid because each individual kid's unique. And you've probably got to figure it out every year because every year is different. So I, 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 I really stay out of any of those debates. So hopefully no one's going to put me in a camp. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but I, I, this in uh, Louisville, in Louisiana, there's this official, in, and the whole idea of uh, using tax dollars in, in your dollars if you're homeschooling your kid to be able to appropriate those dollars for your homeschool. And I understand the logic there. Um, but there's a curriculum that, that's a part of what this elected official is trying to, to use the money for. And in that curriculum, it states that God used the trail of tears to bring a lot, to help 
a lot of Native Americans become Christians. Someone over here I like, because that's where I, thank you, you know, that's where I was at with it. But I don't know if you know much about the Trail of Tears. Um, Georgia, the Cherokees, going way back, it's an it's a incredibly, um, it's an unbelievably, my kids actually, they hate Andrew Jackson because they learned in our quasi-whatever school that Andrew Jackson was responsible for the Trail of Tears. Um, and so my kids are like, we don't like Andrew Jackson. You know, he's a mean guy. Uh, but this curriculum, you know, is kind of spiritualizing that the Trail of Tears, that God used it to bring a lot of Native Americans, you know, to faith, which completely, uh, the, ups, the, the downside of that is that a lot of kids are going to grow up missing the whole moral point of what happened with the Trail of Tears and finding some safe little spot that makes everything okay and spiritualizes it as if it's kind of some kind of good thing, right? So anyways, I'm reading that this morning and I'm thinking about this. I'm like, I, there's a lot of Christians like that, that out there that can write these things or say these things. And, and this is what I said to my wife this morning. I find sometimes that I have more in common with atheists than I do some Christians, Can you, can you, is that okay to say? Do you understand what I mean by that? Because some Christians can, can hold beliefs or say some things that you just want to take them out of themselves, bring them over, and then show them themselves and say, Did you, do you hear what you just said? You know, and, and where, where is Christ in that at all? And where is truth in that at all? And what, what we begin to realize is Christians do this really funny thing with truth is we're so confident we have it that we put no time or energy or work into figuring out what it is. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't study hard. We don't think hard. We don't wrestle hard. We don't make good distinctions. We don't look at what we're actually saying. We just get so overconfident that we're Christians, so everything that comes out of our mouth must be true. That's not the definition of truth, and that's not the way Christianity has been related to truth um, throughout time. It's, it's a very lazy, very arrogant, very offensive way of adopting and co-opting um, the category of truth in a way that then baptizes or blesses everything you say or do, a way of making you right. And there's a self-righteousness in that. There's a Pharisaicism, uh, Pharisaical attitude in that. There's something just not true about that. And so we can begin to look at things like that. I know the world does because I run into it all the time. We can begin to look at those things and then we want to pull away because if having faith means being with or like those people, gee, I don't know that I want that. Do you understand how that goes? Um, we say things like you just got to have faith. I'm struggling. Well, you just got to have faith. I have doubts. Well, you just got to have faith. Well, I don't know how I feel about heaven. You just need to have more faith. This is what made me an agnostic uh, my first couple of years of college, by the way, at Clemson. I was an engineering student. And the definition of faith that had trickled down to me through, through kind of my interactions or cultural forms with Christianity uh, was that faith meant going into the corner closing your eyes and just from some really simplistic way going, 
even though I know nothing of it is true, I'm just going to pretend or hope that it is. I'm just going to try and shut everything out and just, you know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And it's almost disengaging from reality type of faith. And sometimes we lend into that, you know, it it doesn't matter what that is. Just, ah, it's wrong. You just need to have more faith. Instead of going deeper, we just punt with this word faith. That's really challenging. That makes me scared. Is Christianity really true or not? Is Darwinism, does it have any credibility to it? I mean, that's really challenging how I feel and think. And, ah, you just need to have more faith. Um, so when I really had my life flipped upside down by Christ and, and really started going this way, about two Thanksgivings later, I was at my parents' house. And they invited the pastor over for Thanksgiving dinner. And I was in this... You ever notice how um, when we become Christians in a radical way, we become really uh, obnoxious for a few years, right? If you were like me and you had an experience like that, it's funny how that works, right? But you just become so obnoxious. So we're sitting there at the, at the Thanksgiving table, and I started um, getting angry at the pastor. What were you doing with the youth groups when I was in high school? What was that all about? basketball and pizza what was that all about like putting a a 25 year up to share his testimony and it went like I used to drink and it was really fun really cool it got a lot of girls I used to do drugs it was really fun I had a great time I'm really cool by the way I'll show you my tats if you want you know and um and then you know I was doing this but then I finally realized that that this stuff wasn't okay and so I became a Christian became a Christian and you you need to follow me and be like me. You, you need to become a Christian. It's the right thing to do. And every guy in the room, because I know most of you guys there remember this, okay? Every guy in the room who's 16 is going, well, that, that doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound, what you just told me was like, you had a whole lot of fun and then you became a Christian. And that God was okay with that and forgave you because there's this thing called grace. And you're 25 and I'm 16. And you're trying to tell me I got to do that now instead of actually doing what you did, which was, you know, having all the fun and then becoming a Christian because God allows that because there's this thing called grace. And it doesn't make, this doesn't make any sense to me. So you know what? I'm smarter than you. I'm going to take your advice, but I'm going to wait till I'm 25. <laughs> I mean, Am I the only guy that, like, was eating pizza, you know, and thinking, like, when can we get back to basketball? And thinking that, like, there's nothing about what this guy makes sense. So I was mad at this pastor sitting there for Thanksgiving and saying, what, the, what these guys you were putting in front of high school kids should have been saying is, I tried this, and my life was miserable. I tried this, and it ruined my life. I tried this, and God ground me to dust. And I ultimately realized that my true satisfaction and my true life was to be found in Christ. Now, if you're really smart, you're not going to go down all those dead ends like me. You're going to realize that God here is here right now offering this life to you, this, this grace, and that you can have fullness of life and joy in Him, and you can have that now and not be like me. But these 25-year-old kids wanted to be cool so much that they mixed the whole message and they inserted themselves into the equation, which was, I, I'm going to try and impress you so much that what you really hear is, be like me in my sin, and then someday be like me in my salvation. 
So I'm, I'm, by the way, do you understand what I mean by that? So I'm blasting this pastor, and my parents are just like, you know, wanting to hide. And, and, uh, and you want to know what I get excited about with Luke being here to do high school ministries? is Luke gets the gospel. He doesn't just want to be liked, and there's an infinite amount of difference there. So we use faith that way. You just got to have more faith. Why do we have Redux every week? Because I, I honestly began to realize when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and he took all questions, it's because he's not scared of questions. When you're standing on truth, even if you're confused about how to articulate something, even if you haven't had a question before, if you're standing on truth, you can take the questions. And Jesus was not afraid of any questions because at the bottom there's truth. And we as Christians shouldn't be afraid of questions because ultimately questions, if we wrestle with it long enough, is going to lead us more and more towards truth. And as it leads us more and more towards truth, it leads us more and more towards Christ. So questions are a wonderful, beautiful, necessary part of the equation sometimes of moving towards truth and then ultimately Christ. And when we short-circuit that because we don't know how to handle our teenagers' questions or our doubting friends' questions or the guy at work's questions, and we just go, ah, oh, you shouldn't be asking questions. You should just have more faith. We're actually doing something really strange and short-circuiting the process that, that can and often does lead people to Christ. So why do we do redux in Antioch? Why, why every week, except for this week, why does every, because we want you guys to go in the commons and do community group Sunday, but why, why do every week we open it up and say, what, what's the question? Because we want the conversation to start where you're at, where the question is at, and then let it go from there. Because you could sit here for 10 years, and the real thing that's preventing you from faith, the real question, could never get addressed. And so Redux is this beautiful thing where we're like, it starts with the question. The conversation goes from there and moves on out. Because faith is not just this, this thing that we do, this exercise in self-delusion. If we're true Christians, if we understand where Christ was at, we actually have confidence in this God who is, is bent down to meet us. One last thing about faith that, that I think becomes problematic. And that's when every time we see something bad or something go wrong, we just, you know, tisk tisk, that person didn't have enough faith, meaning God would have taken care of them or God would have healed them if only they'd, they'd had enough faith. Now, this is one of those grand um, examples of how we can take a little bit of Scripture and make it a dangerous thing. Does that make sense? In Jesus' day, the view was if bad things were happening, it was because you, you sinned or your parents sinned. And so here's a guy with this deformity, and, and the, the disciples say, um, who sinned, Jesus? That guy or his parents? Like, what, who sinned? And Jesus didn't go, well, actually, it was his great uncle. No, I mean, he didn't play into that view of a piece of understanding of Scripture. What he says, no, God knows from the beginning of time. God even was at work in this guy's life, and God is going to accomplish his will even though this guy has, has physical deformities. In fact, God's going to bring glory to himself right now as I, as, as I heal this guy. You know? and, and he just sidesteps it and says, putting something into a box so cleanly that, that good is because you're good and bad is because you weren't good, and we completely miss that this creation is broken and it groans and it, it, it awaits this day of redemption and salvation. 
that nature itself is, is kind of broke, that our bodies uh, are flawed and are broke and will decay. And so this idea that if, if the right thing didn't happen because you didn't have enough faith, maybe. But you can't play that card 100% of the time because when you're 220 years old, you know, and, and you're on your deathbed, can you really say to that person, you know, God's not going to give you another 50 years or save you from this because you don't have enough faith? That, you can't play that card every time in your own life, and it's pretty darn flippant and cliche if we play it every time in other people's lives because we don't necessarily know half the time what's going on in our own life with God. We certainly don't know half the time or most of the time what's going on in someone else's life with regard to God. And so there's this sense in which waiting, feeling, um, praying for, even just suffering under the burden of other people's pains rather than just simply putting a sticker on it and saying, um, here's... Here's the prescription. You should have gone and ha- you should have had more faith. Now go and have more faith. And wasn't that fun? I love how Bible uh, verses work. Now I'm going to go back to my you know chicken salad for lunch. It's this really shallow way in which we can misappropriate a biblical principle and universalize it. Does that make sense? And that can begin to make faith this frustrating thing of it's some magic potion and evidently I, I'm the only one that doesn't know how to use it because I don't always get what I ask for. I don't, I don't always get out of the jams that I put myself into. The people that are sick in my life don't always get healed. And so I must just be failing at faith, and it begins to lead to this depression. All right, turn to Galatians 2, chapter 20, if you'd like. I'm trying to say we've got to rethink, redefine, and try to understand what is meant by this, this thing called faith. It says in Hebrews Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Um, Faith is so foundational to what it means to be a Christian, to what it means to have a relationship, that if we don't understand it, everything from there is going to go sideways. Galatians 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 20. I'll just read uh, the whole chunk here. Um, Verse 17. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners... Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? If, if you're my friend and you've got flaws, does that mean that, that I actually promote flaws? Flaws are a good thing or hey, I, I'm okay with flaws? It, it doesn't follow. And, and So what Paul's trying to say here is, look, just because Jesus is a friend of sinners, just because uh, while we're trying to be justified, we are sinners, does that mean Jesus promotes sin? No, he doesn't. Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. Through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So here's the context. Um, Paul's been going and sharing the gospel. He's one of these obnoxious Christians that's had this radical experience, and God's using him um, like he's used nobody before in some sense. Um, And uh, he's going around, and he's sharing, listen, you're a sinner, and there's grace, more than enough grace for your sin. And if you repent, turn around, place your trust in God 
follow him, make him the priority, worship him and him alone, that he will lead you on, not only in this life, what it is you should do with your life, okay, but he will lead you on into the way of salvation. You will receive salvation from God through your faith in Christ that he died for your sins. It's this beautiful thing. It's the God. It's good news. It's unbelievable news. It's awkward news. Have you ever received something you didn't deserve and, and you want to immediately pay it back? It's like, but the paying it back hollows out the gift. You know what I'm saying? Like you get something great at Christmas. Well, let me run into my room and find, find something valuable and I'll, I'll come running back and give it to you. That's not what the giver of the gift wants. What the giver of the gift wants is appreciation. And this grace is awkward from God. Sometimes you sin and you're like, you're like, I'm going to be miserable all day and hate myself all day. Why? Because then at the end of the day, I can feel better about feeling better about myself. Why? Because I've been miserable all day, which showed that I really kind of punished myself. Well, I, God doesn't want you to feel better at the end of the day because you've been miserable all day at yourself. God wants you to feel better at the end of the day because you anchor yourself in the fact that he loves you and will forgive you and let you start over with him, which is awkward, and we can't handle that awkwardness. We can't stand there in that awkwardness. We find other ways to kind of try and pay it back. And the grand way that was happening in the New Testament to this awkwardness of grace was people were punting back to the Jewish faith. What they were doing is they were punting back to the religious side, the ceremonial side of, of the Jewish faith that said to be a a, to be right with God, you have to be right with your religion first. And to be right with your religion meant to do the right kinds of behaviors, to observe the right kinds of requirements, um, and to be, in, a, in some sense, an upstanding in a, in a good position with regard to that faith. So Paul is traveling and then hears that these uh, legalistic people had come up and they were beginning to twist the gospel, the good news, for these people. So instead of it being all about God and all about grace and all about Jesus dying on the cross that you might live, now it was becoming all about the rules and all about the formula and all about cultural ceremonial uh, Christianity. And so the focus gets taken off of this and onto this, and how do, I, how do I live in accordance with this? How do I modify my behaviors this way? How do I get my calendar out and schedule the right dates and the right things? and the, and the right, What's the right language, by the way, for this? I, I don't know. Someone teach me. And, okay, now I have the right language. <laughs> you don't. Um, now you're the outsider. This is kind of fun. I'm an insider. And, and it's all about the formula, and we absolutely love formulas. Books that have formulas in them sell like crazy. We love it being boiled down and packaged for us so we can just follow along and check it off and it's clear and, and it's not messy at all. And we love, and this is what was happening um, to the Galatian churches. And Paul comes along and he just says, no, it wasn't by the law at all. I didn't go that direction to make religion work for me. I rejected that and accepted Christ and that it was his death on the cross that was going to work for me. And so he says, I mean, listen to this. I have been crucified with Christ. When I put my faith in Christ, I was crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be attained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So being saved by faith, when I put my faith in Christ, I'm crucified with him. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I literally go through some sort of a death. And then in, because in, I'm, I'm still living, so whatever that death was, was some kind of a symbolic or whatever kind of death. Um, it didn't kill my physical life. It didn't snuff out my, my actual life. This death, some, I died with Christ and somehow am resurrected to be able to live with him in some sort of a, a relationship where I'm covered by him. I'm in his circle. I'm on his team. He knows me now. Um, and in that, it's no longer I who live, but he who lives within me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives within me. You can think about that for a second. Faith, the way we define it as, as kind of just belief in. So, you know, do you have faith? Yeah, I believe God exists. Um, hey, are you a person of faith? Yeah, I believe in God. I'm a Christian. Um, we, we've taken in kind of the American language, we've, we've taken the, the word faith and brought it down to meaning belief in the existence of something. So faith in God means I have faith that God believes or that God exists. And, and I kind of think maybe there's a heaven. So I, yeah, I guess you could call me a person of faith. Do you, do you understand what I, how I'm using the word faith there? That's typically how the word faith gets used. So if I'm going to put my faith in Christ, it means, hey, all things being equal, this sounds like a pretty good bet. Why not put my faith in Christ? What else am I going to put it in? I'll put my faith in Christ and say, yeah, I think you're true. And if I'm lucky, if I get lucky, this is the great part about it, then I, I win. If he really does exist, I win. If he doesn't exist, well, you know, I mean, well, I don't know that I really lose anything. I might, I, might, I might get teased a little bit, but heck, Christianity is the dominant religion in, in America still, so I'm not going to get teased that bad. It's pretty easy to live here. I'm not going to lose my life for it. You know? So let, yeah, I'll put my faith in Christ. Sign me up. What do I got to do? Where do I got to be? That's how we use faith. Now, I want, I want you to think about it. If faith means that I die, I'm crucified, and that in, in living, I don't even live anymore. But now it's Christ um, living in me and living through me. The life I live, um, I live through Christ. How does that have to do with believing just in the existence of somebody? It doesn't, it doesn't, it's nonsensical with that kind of cheap view of faith. This kind of faith is... I have absolutely married my life, tied my life to Christ, such that life alone is dead, and life with Christ now exists, and that life is informed by Christ. It's like marriage. The two shall become one. So when I, I enter into this covenant of marriage, my old life, my single life, where I only knew one thing that I could cook every night, that life, right, um, is gone. And this new life is, is we. I find myself, I, I was thinking about this a week or two ago. I always use the word we. 
I mean, I, I have a family. I'm far, I have my kid, my wife, but it's, it's not my old life. That life is dead. It's incredibly dead. And, and now the life I live, I live as a communal member, as being intricately tied to this family. It's, it's a different kind of life. When we become a Christian, when we put our faith in Christ, it's not just saying, I, I believe you exist, because James says, well, doesn't Satan believe that God exists? If that was really the bar, then wouldn't the guys that even rebelled against God be with God? Like, because they know he exists, because they were, you know what I'm saying? So James is trying to say, listen, if that's all faith is, is belief that God exists, that's not much, really. So um, when we put our faith in Christ, we actually are getting married into him. Jesus himself uses this imagery of a branch uh, going into a vine, or that he's the man sent from heaven. He becomes our nourishment that we take, or uh, his righteousness covers our sins. So it's almost like we come up underneath a cloak that makes us look different to the eyes of God and where God stands. There's all these different ways. We're now a part of the body of Christ, and the head of the body in the New Testament is always Jesus, but we become members in that body being uh, interconnected with with Christ and with other members of the body. It's this whole revolution of existence and identity. A whole revolution of existence and identity comes with this idea of faith. It's not a formula. It's not a formula. Picture with me for a second, uh, you walk into a village naked. Picture, I mean... (laughs) You walk, you walk into a village naked. Does that feel comfortable to anybody? What's the first thing you want to do? You walk into a village and you're naked. You want to get clothes, right? How do you get clothes? How do you get anything? You want to walk in with something that you can leverage to barter with that gives you your confidence, right? Right? God sees us uh, as naked. The, the thing that happened with sin was it made us want to cover ourselves in shame. In the garden, they're naked. There was no shame. They sin. All of a sudden, it's I have to isolate myself because myself is flawed and can no longer be put out there and be visible. I'm naked. There's this awkward shame. And so what we typically do in Galatians, Paul's addressing this over and over. We, 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 we know we're naked. The person who sees us the most naked is God. I can, I can pretend with you guys. I can play with you guys. I can masquerade with you guys. When I walk up to God, I'm naked. It's awkward, and I want to be clothed, and I want to be clothed really quickly. And what I really want to do is I want to have something to barter with. I want to be confident when I stand in front of God that I can get covering and be okay again and not feel so awkward. The great problem of religion, the great blessing of religion is we we learn about Christ through religion. Religion is a category. It's not inherently bad. The bad thing about religion, though, is when we go to a man-centered view of religion, when we begin to put ourselves into religion so much that we think we can somehow, like the Tower of Babel, 
find and do and work so that we have. And as we grow in self-righteousness, we begin to have things where we feel like, hey, I can talk casually to God because, you know, I'm in the same club. I'm pretty good too. You know, maybe not as good as you, but hey, look at how, how good I am. And I'm a heck of a lot better than that guy. You must be pretty proud of me, God. Hey, I tell you what, why don't you just cloak me? I'll trade you my, my good stuff. You give me some clothing, you know, and it'll all be good and we'll just hang out here. And, and, and we want to be able to barter. And so we want, we want those formulas. We want those rules. We want those opportunities to become better and good and to, and to develop self-righteousness so that we can be with God, but bringing some of our own merit to the equation. And Paul is saying, no, who cut in on your race what he says who cut in on your race and stole the joy that you had the joy of being with God the joy of his grace as awkward as it is that he loves you and that he does the work God saves sinners and that you're brought into this family and that you're naked and sick and blind and poor but he clothes you in his love and you're adopted in and even though it, it, it comes with a measure of humility that you get to embrace that relationship and there's so much joy there and, and Paul says who cut in on your race and brought the rules back in as if that was how you were going to be righteous turn to 2 Corinthians with me if you would 2 Corinthians by the way, is a crazy book that you should go home and read several times over. It, it busts your paradigms. It's just not what you expect. Um, but one, ask, uh, one part of it, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's after Romans and then 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Amazing chapter all in all. But listen to what it says here. Paul's talking about, it's better if I go and, and be with God. If the tent I live in is destroyed, in verse 1, then I get to go be in this eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed, our heavenly dwelling, to go be with God, because we are, when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. So it's exciting. It's good news. We're going to go be in this dwelling with God. We won't be naked anymore. For while we are in this tent, we groan and we are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. It's God first, and la uh, first through last, by the way. That's why Jesus even brings up over and over again in the book of Revelation on the Alpha and the Omega. It begins and ends here. That's why the first commitment at Antioch is that we're Christ-centered. We can't put anything else at the center of this program or agenda and think we're getting anything right. We start with Christ. We take our eyes off of Christ and we immediately begin to walk astray. We start there. Everything else flows from there. If we're going to be a healthy church, it flows from there. If we're going to be in good relationship with others in this church and in this community, it's because we start on Christ. It begins there. God has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Verse 6, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home and in the body, we are, we are away from the Lord, and we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and I'd prefer 
to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him. See the connection between faith and pleasing God. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, this begins to dominate our thinking. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So where does good works come from? Belief that Jesus exists, that God exists, and that we're going to see him someday. If we don't really think we're ever going to see him or might not see him, um, the degree of importance for this life goes down. Let me just navigate my way through it. If I know I'm going to appear before Christ and I'm a steward of my life and I'm an ambassador, if I'm an ambassador for Christ, so we go on, look at verse 16 here, same chapter. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do not do so any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is what? From God. He reconciled us. God saves sinners. He reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry, the stewardship of being able to reconcile others as well. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting man's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the the unjust becoming just through Christ. Let me try and boil this all down as we kind of try and close it. Jesus spent most of his time with parables and other uh, ways of getting at religious people and saying, but you actually don't have faith. And so one passage in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, many are going to come to me when, I, when that day, the judgments, many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we did things in your name, we went, we went and talked to guys at Clemson University that obviously weren't saved. You know, we, we even joined small groups. I even, I even think I prayed once and a miracle happened. I honestly think so. You know, does that make me a saint, by the way, Jesus? Like, I don't know. I don't know. No one could answer that question for me when I was on earth, but I'm curious. Am I a saint? You know, I did a miracle in your name. So, so what's next? Is now when I get the robe? When do I get the robe? What, you know, do I have a room? Who's going to take me to her room? Uh, Can someone get my bags? And Jesus says, "Ah." and I'm actually going to say to to many of those people, depart from me. I know you not. Many people can study everything there is about George Bush or Obama and get really close to him and be like, George! George! And the Secret Service, you know, you know what they'll do? <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get there because you can know everything there is to know about George Bush. You can know his Social Security number and his dog's name. I don't know, Obama's dog's name. Doesn't mean you know him. And Jesus is going to say, many people are going to think they know me, they have degrees that say they know me. They hold jobs that said they know me. And 
They had tattoos that said they know me. And, and I, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to say to you that I don't know you. Because you were engaged, yes, in religion. Yes, religion that bore my name, Christianity. Yes, you were doing a lot of things. Yes, you might have done some good things. But you never really understood the nature of faith, that faith was about a relationship with me. It was about a, not just believing certain doctrines, but about dying to self and being related to me. There's a fidelity. There's a relationship to faith and walking with me where I could have informed you, and that would have done it. And when we're in this kind of relationship, here's the kicker about faith, by the way. Faith is really frustrating. It, it says we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is like a compass, not necessarily seeing the destination, which drives us crazy. All of us want um, the destination. God, I'll, I'll walk by faith as a single person. Just tell me when I'm going to get married. It could be 10 years from now. I honestly could be okay with that. It's the not knowing that's killing me. Let me know. And then I'll walk by faith. No, you get up every day, you do what I tell you, and you trust that if I'm going to bring you the right person, I will do it in my time when it's the right time. It'll be the right person. That's the life you, don't, uh, you want. You don't want any life but that, so keep walking by faith. God, what about my business? Am I really going to lose my business? Am I going to lose my house? Just tell me now. I can take it, but I can't live with this constant wondering. Is this cancer really the end? T please tell me. Because if so, I'm going to make a bunch of videotapes for my, my kids or my grandkids, or I'm going to really change the way I do time. I just need to know the final answer. Faith isn't the final answer. Faith is walking by faith, trusting that each day when we, when we look up to, to God, God will direct or lead or work, and, and it's not always going to be what we want. You want to know why God never gives us the final answer? Because half of the final answers would cause us, frankly, to walk away from Him. You're never going to be married. Yes, this cancer will take your life. Yes, you are going to lose your house. And maybe even your spouse. Uh, well, that's not okay. So let me go find a different answer, to, uh, different solution to get the answer I want. You see what I'm saying? And God's like, I give you what you can take every day. You walk by faith. It's a compass. Um, it's a relationship. And it's God that can provide. And so we, we go at it that way. I want to take you one last place um, in Ezekiel, if you will. We'll just <laughs> ratchet it up real high and then end it right in the middle of it. This will be classic breaking the rules of preaching. How do we find this kind of faith that ties us, marries us to God, this fidelity, this, this relationality of our faith? Um, a lot of times it starts with de desperation. And we know this about rock bottom, don't we? A lot of times when we cry out from the pit, that's where it begins. Um, the other place it can begin if we're not in a position of desperation is discipline. So desperation or discipline is where the spiritual disciplines come in, where uh, being a part of the community of faith, Bible reading comes in, and then ultimately desire. The beauty of um, faith is the more time you spend with Christ, the less time you want to spend anywhere else. Interns always come in and they're like, man, I hear about people with this unbelievable relationship with God, and it's like, I want that. Tell me how I can get that. And, and I'll give them an answer, but the answer usually goes like this. Absolutely, I'll tell you how you can have that. Um, here's the deal, though. It's going to take like 10 years. It's going to take like 10. You really want to develop intimacy and a prayer life and, and this, this, the ability 
to subtly hear uh, the voice of God or, or his leading? Do you want to do do begin to really understand nuances of faith and have just the most unbelievably vital relationship with God like in terms of intimacy? Yeah, it's not going to happen by next week. There's no one book I can give you. There's no one like, aha, like, oh, that changes everything. It's, it's a slow dying to self, a slow learning about him, a slow understanding truth, a, a, a capacity building with regard to prayer and other things. And, and it takes a long time. But it begins a lot of times with desperation. Discipline um, is the lost art of discipleship. And then ultimately, we stay and follow Christ because that's where we want to be. And sin is like, yeah, how could that compare? I don't, I don't want it. I know where that will lead me. I don't want it. And so ultimately, it's informed by desire. Here's Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 23. And this is the thought I had this week, but just reading this. God brought the Israelites out of the desert not to give them land, but to give them himself. He brought them out of slavery so that he, they could be a people set apart to him and he could be their God. Why did they wander in the desert in so many different directions? Because he was trying to teach them, I'm the compass and I'm the leader. It's not just about the quickest way to put you into your land so you can get your 40 acres. It's not about the land. The land is only where you land while you're in relationship with me. Does that make sense? It's always about relationship. When you understand that, you understand wanderings and things like that. But it's about the fidelity of that relationship with God as the head. So here's Ezekiel prophesying. Verse 35 of chapter 23. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Since you have forgotten me and thrust me behind your back, you cannot be following someone who's behind you. Right? The first rule of following is that, that, that they're in front of you. You have thrust me behind your back. You must bear the consequences of your lewdness and prostitution. You have not just put me behind your back. You've broken covenant with me. You've become unfaithful. The fidelity is gone in this relationship. You do not remember me as primary. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Ohalaba? Then confront them with their detestable practices, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They committed adultery with their idols. They even sacrificed their children, whom they bore to me as food for them. They have also done, uh, done this to me. At that same time, they defiled my sanctuary and desecrated my Sabbaths. In other words, you're going and following other gods, making those primary, and then without even realizing it, you walk into my house the same day you commit infidelity. The same time that you have something higher than me, you come into church or open your Bible with your kids or go to Bible study. I mean, and, and God... Like if God was an immature teenage boy, he would punch a lot of people. Do you understand that? There's a, such a motion, hopefully, I mean, obviously coupled with this maturity of God, but there's this passion and emotion. And then he says this. They even sent messengers for men who came from far away. And when they arrived, you bathed yourself for them. 
painted your eyes and put on your jewelry. You sat on an elegant couch with a table spread before it on which you had placed the the incense and the oil that belonged to me. Here's where we're going to end. You're so distracted, and faith is measured by devotions. Why? Okay, Um, your actions, are they ever going to be perfect? No. So, So God doesn't look at the actions so much as the heart. In your heart, day to day, are you ever going to have your heart perfectly right, perfectly correct motives? No. So even in looking at your heart in the day-to-day ups and downs, God doesn't even look at that. What God looks at is standing back and saying, I can measure yes or no whether you're devoted to me. What does God see in your heart? Because he looks past our, our weaknesses He says, I know whether or not you're devoted to me. If you're devoted to me, it's pleasing, and I will work with you, and we're together. If you're not devoted with me, uh, devoted to me, you're devoted to something else. Something will always occupy the top spot, and if it's not God, it's something other than God. And God can look in your heart and go, actions aside, motives aside, I know that you're really not devoted to me. And God is saying to Ezekiel, man, it's so crazy. The language and the religion, they got all that, but they're not devoted to me. And not only that, but they're inviting the things that they are devoted into their life. And then they're even getting dressed up for those other things. And they're showing their devotion because the thing about devotion is it always manifests itself, right? The top priority in our life gets our time and our energy, and we will contort ourselves and dress ourselves up for what we're devoted to. And that devoted thing is coming, and we're putting on perfume and makeup, and we're showing our devotion to that thing. And God says, you're even taking money or time or energy or relationships that were put there to be used for me and your stewards of their mind, and you're using those things in dressing up for this thing that you're really devoted to. I thought about that this week because it's football season. And I'm, this is about me. But all the football games and the jerseys and the little, the little O's and S's and C's makeup now that they sell, you know, and, and the car flyers and the TV for like five hours yesterday watching games that I don't even care about. But the Clemson game, my cable doesn't, it, three different channels, it showed it on the guide, and it, and it, but it won't work. Do you understand how frustrating that is? <laughs> it's right there, but it's not there. <laughs> so I watch Pac-12. Like, is it Pac-12 now? It's Pac-12 now, right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, why am I doing this? I'm not from the West Coast. I don't, you know, anyways. I'm, I'm serious, though. Um, I traveled for two days this week, and I realized that I spent more time rearranging my fantasy football roster than I did opening scripture. I, I don't like to you know, preach for guilt's sake. We're in this big guilt-free culture, right? Guilt has a place. It has a place in my life. It has a place in your life. And it can help us see things that make us go, oh, oh, I, yeah, I don't know that that's really so good. And then we can question ourselves and evaluate and make changes. Guilt serves a purpose. 
and reading this Ezekiel passage and the whole idea about painting up and with the makeup, and I'm like, it's so easy to see it in Ezekiel, but this is symbolic language for everyday life things that they were missing. The people, the Israelites in Ezekiel's day were missing their infidelity. It was so subtle because we'd made God so tame and the things of culture so innocuous that without realizing it, our devotion is more here than here. And so in this series, we gotta, we got to end, but um, in this series, we're talking about faith, and what we're really talking about is the absolute heart and core of our relationship with God, our fidelity, our devotion, with the idea that we want to be there and nowhere else. I have, I have been crucified with Christ. In the life I live in the body, I no longer live, but it's he who lives within me, and that's all I want, and that's my safe point. That's where I know I'm at anything else, I should feel weird. I really should feel weird. And so we, we steer into that. Let's pray quickly, and then grace is coming up, and uh, we're going to take the offering and, and have the offertory. But Father, we, we, do, we do know we're weak. We know we're weak. Father, please, please just break us, put us in that position of humility. Um, keep us in a position of humility that you may do something with us. Don't let us ever think that it's our goodness that we're somehow leaning into. It's, it's, it's you who saves sinners, and you do that through Christ and his death on the cross. Let us get excited about that. Let us treat it as this great news. Let us not hollow it out, make it shallow, by thinking that faith is something uh, that lends itself to our own righteousness. So, Father, we commit, we commit this church to you. In Christ's name.